Okay, we'll take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 2. Now, as you know, the context of every passage is key to our correct understanding of that passage. And since uh, I have not spoke on Romans or in Romans for the last couple of weeks, let me just spend a little extra time this morning backing up and just bringing us up to speed. As some of you may have uh, forgotten where we're at. The Apostle Paul uh, is in the middle of discussing the sinfulness, or if you will, the depravity of mankind, and he will actually continue to do that until the middle of chapter 3. And at that point, uh, having a complete understanding of our sinfulness and therefore our separation from God, he will then uh, give the only option for forgiveness, and that, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, backing up to chapter 1, Paul establishes the fact that man wants nothing to do with God, an outright rejection of God. And therefore, Paul three times uses the phrase, God gave them over. Okay, or if you will, God gave them over to their sin. And that's God saying, fine. Look, at, if you guys want to go on and living your life in utter sin, okay, go ahead. And so, if you will, he abandons them to do whatever shameful things that their hearts desire. He gave them over to their sin. Of course, there are going to be consequences for that. The first time God gave them over was mentioned in verse 24, chapter 1, verse 24. It says that God gave them over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. You might put it this way. They don't like the fact that God says a sexual relationship is between one man and one woman in marriage. We don't like that. We want other options. We want to do things when we want with whom we want. That's their attitude. The second point God gave them over to was, he says, shameful lusts. And that is in verses 26 and 27. And this was talking about homosexual behavior. It says in that text that, that men abandoned natural relations with women for unnatural ones with other men. And of course, women did the same thing with other women. And of course, Paul says in there, he says, you will receive in yourselves the due penalty for your perversion. In other words, the judgment upon them for these, uh, this sexual activity, this homosexual activity, would be what comes out of those, those homosexual relationships. And lastly, in verses 28 and following, God just flat out, he says, gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he goes on and he literally gives a, a, a litany of, of vices that describe those who reject God. I mean, just glancing down at it, he talks about evil and greed, envy, murder, slander, God-haters, ruthless, faithless. He even says they invent ways of doing evil. If there aren't enough ways already, they invent ways, he says, of doing evil. But then, of course, it all tops off in verse 32, where he says, although they know God's righteous decree, 
that those who do such things deserve death. That's spiritual death, not physical. They're already going to die no matter what they do. They deserve, they deserve death. What does it say? They not only continue to do those very things, but they actually approve of those who practice them. If you want to know the, the, the definition of, of depravity, that's it right there. A flat-out rejection of everything God stands for. Well, from there, Paul moves seamlessly right into chapter 2. He doesn't miss a beat, but now he calls out a different kind of sin, and that is the hypocrisy of some of his readers. Now, if you remember, as we were going through this study, it's, like I said, it's been about three weeks now, these seem to be uh, the, the Jewish segment of the church. If you remember during my introduction, the church in Rome is predominantly Gentile, Okay, but there are some Jews as well, and we know that just by studying through the book of Romans. He speaks on these Jewish issues on different occasions. Okay, we'll see those in the coming up verses, probably in the next couple of weeks. Okay, the point though is that even though all of mankind, no matter what people group you belong to, uh, struggles with sin, we all struggle with sin, no matter who you are, what you look like, where you're from certain cultures might show a more prominent sinful trait than some others, just based on the culture. Well, back in the first century, the Jews seemed to have one down pretty well, and that was their self-righteous attitude towards non-Jews. Because, as you know, the Jews were God's chosen they had God's moral law at their fingertips, and they've known it, of course, since they were a child. They believed that they held to a higher moral standard than those of their contemporaries, the Gentiles. Okay? Basically, we are morally and ethically superior to all of you who live in the kind of sin we just read in chapter 1. You guys are a bunch of immoral, whatever you want to call them. Look at everything we listed in chapter 1. We're better than that. See? Well, Paul decides to call them out just like he did the others. And he said in verses 1 through 4, chapter 2, he says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. He says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, or your translation might say it's right, or God judges rightly, okay? He then says, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you will somehow escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Now, folks, as I read that, I, I really hope that everybody read that with me, okay? Uh, I, I hope you paid attention to those four verses. And the reason I say that is not everyone with a high view of themselves, like we see in that text, not everyone with a high view of themselves recognizes they have a high view of themselves, which is usually the case. It's very easy for them and for you and me to look down on other people, not realizing that when we look down on somebody, we're actually elevating 
ourselves. And so sometimes, just as a reminder for all of us, when we look at these kinds of passages, even though we're looking at it in its original context, it applies to you and me, sometimes we look at these and we need maybe a little self-examination, right? Because it's easy to look at these kind of things just like, just like those people and say, well, he's talking about them. He's talking about my neighbor here next to me, the guy who's sitting next to me in church. No, he's talking to all of us. So just keep that in mind if you would. Now, that being said, misguided people often use these verses, these four verses, to say, well, you know, the problem is judging others, right? You can't judge others. That's bogus. That's a lie, and keep that in mind. Now, for the Christian, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, is very clear. We are not to judge those outside the church, which makes sense, right? They don't know Christ. You can't sit around expecting those who don't know Christ to, to live like they, they should know Christ, or, or that why aren't they doing this and this and this? They don't know Jesus Christ. It says don't judge them. That should make complete sense. But for those inside the church, for those who are a part of the church, it's a different story. And Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, is very clear on that. I'm not going to go through it as we did that already last time we met. But the command there to not judge is talking about hypocritically. It's talking about not judging self-righteously. And Jesus goes on in the text to actually explain that. Okay? Well, that is exactly what's going on right here in Romans chapter 2. He says here in verse 1, when you pass judgment on somebody else, he says, guess what? You're condemning yourself because you're doing the same thing. It's like going back to Matthew 7. He says, pull the log you have in your eye, pull it out before you tell somebody else about the little splinter that they have in theirs. See, that's the hypocrisy. Matter of fact, this hypocrisy is actually questioned once again right here in Romans chapter 2 in verses 17 through 24. I encourage you to go back and read that on your own. But he challenges them once again, specifically talking to the Jews because they, they typically had this issue. But going into verse 3, he then said, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you're going to escape God's judgment? Now, folks, here's the kicker. If those people were to actually answer that question honestly, okay, about escaping God's judgment, the answer would typically be yes. Yes. In the back of their minds, they really do believe that they will escape God's judgment. While they judge the other person, while they condemn the other person, they don't do that to themselves. See? Somewhere, and I'm going to change this to you and me, somewhere in the back of our brain, we think that God is not going to judge us the same way that he does them. Even though verse 1 says we do the same thing. Thing. Matter of fact, verse 4 makes that point. The end of verse 3 says, Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Verse 4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Folks, this was the problem then 
really just like it is today. People show contempt, or contempt meaning they, they, they take lightly, they presume on the patience, they presume on the tolerance and, and the kindness of God. And just because God is, is, is kind and tolerant and patient to you does not mean he's saying that you can go off and judge their sin, but somehow you will get a free ride at the judgment seat and you're just going to cruise on into the glory of heaven. It doesn't work that way. Folks, some people have literally and still gambled their eternal destiny simply because God has shown them kindness on this earth, and he does, right? He has, but therefore they presume the same will happen one day as they stand before God. I'll be just fine, see? Well, Paul has some additional words for these people. He's not quite done with them just yet, and that's going to be our text this morning. Read with me verses 5 through 11. He says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good, seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So coming off of verse 4, the ones who are hypocritically judging others, right? They see the sin of everyone else, but they continually ignore their own sin. Okay, they're presuming on future kindness of God as they stand before the judgment seat. They're presuming on the future kindness of God that he has shown them on this earth, okay? But Paul says the kindness of God on this earth, which we simply know as God's mercy, by the way. You can also put grace in there. But the kindness that God is showing you, he said, from that verse, he said it's meant to convict you of your sin. It's meant to draw you to repentance. It's not meant to somehow give you a free ride and think, ah, just, just go ahead and sin. Do whatever you want. It's all good. Of course not. But man loves his sin so much he misses the intent. And he basically justifies his own sin while claiming to be right with God. Everyone else is in trouble. Everyone else is immoral. Everyone else does these sins. But I'm okay. I'm just fine. Don't worry about me. That's the mindset. Well, as we can see from verse 5, Paul shuts that down instantly. He says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The word, the word uh, stubbornness there is sclerotes, which is where we get our word sclerosis. Okay, most of us have heard that word before. It simply means hard. The word stubbornness means hard. It means hardened. We've, many of you have heard of the word arteriosclerosis, right? You've probably heard that word before. That's a hardening of the arteries, 
okay? So he's talking about being hardened. Now, the problem with the people here that we're talking about was not a physical hardening like that disease. It's a spiritual hardening. It's a heart issue. We've all met hard-hearted people. It's a, it's a heart issue. You see, folks, it's one thing to have a, 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 a physical issue that may send you to an early grave, right, because of some condition. It's a whole other thing to be spiritually sent to hell. It's a whole other issue. Well, that hardening is what caused the second issue he mentions in verse 5, and that is an unrepentant heart. The, to repent uh, metanoia, many of you probably have heard that word before. The repent means to change one's mind, okay, which, as you know, results in changing of actions, right? The changing of mind results in changing of actions. In salvation, you might say something like you're turning from sin and you're turning to Christ. We just simply will call that repentance, not confession. Confession is just simply spilling your guts, but it's actually an action. It's doing something. You're turning from your sin, you're turning to Christ. Here, the word is, is unrepented, okay? In the Greek, it just simply puts an A in front of it, just like we do today, right? An A negates the word. Theism, atheism, right? It's the same, it's the same principle. So being unrepentant is one that has no concern at all for the sin that they have committed, and they refuse to turn from it. I like my sin. I enjoy my sin. My sin is fun. That's the way that I'm going to live. That also simply means you refuse the offer of God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So for whatever their reasoning, so whatever their thought process, you feel like you're okay just the way you are. I'm fine. No need to worry about me. No need to share the gospel with me. I don't need to hear it again just fine, okay? Folks, I can't tell you, and maybe some of you can say the same thing, I can't tell you how many people that I've spoken to over all of these years who have literally rejected Jesus Christ, even to me. They've rejected Jesus Christ, but feel all is going to be fine, and they are going to heaven. I had a tenant that way. She was dying of cancer, and it was quick, and she had lived there 23 years, 26 years, and she was dying really fast. And I, I approached her as her landlord to share Christ with her. And uh, her response to me was, oh, I grew up a Presbyterian. Okay, I don't care if you grew up a Baptist or a Nazarene or anything. What, what does that mean? What have you done with Jesus Christ? And I could see her daughter back there, you know, shaking her head because she got it, you know. And, uh, but it didn't matter because she grew up going to a certain church. She's heaven bound. As far as I know, she never her faith in Jesus Christ, but a lot, a lot of people feel that. Well, as Paul has noted here, that's the problem. It doesn't matter, folks, what one thinks. It doesn't matter what you feel. We live in a time when everybody, with their feelings as if it, it, it somehow is defining truth, which of course is not true. It doesn't matter. What does he say in the verse? He says in the verse, you are storing up wrath against who? Anybody? Yourself yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Wow. You're looking at somebody who's, who's, pointing, the, who's pointing the finger at everybody else. He's saying, hey, 
Do you not realize you don't get it? You're storing up wrath for yourself for the time of God's wrath that one day. Now, in chapter 1, verse 18, you might remember we spent a whole sermon on just God's wrath, okay? In that text, he's talking about God's present wrath, or maybe you can say God's wrath that comes upon this earth. Here, you'll notice it says it is the day of God's wrath, okay? The day of God's wrath, okay? Now, listen, holding on to some one-liner, well, Darren, God is love, and he would never do that. God is love, and he would never send somebody to hell. Folks, let me tell you what, I don't care how you feel, that's not going to fly. That's not going to cut it. God is just, and he judges justly. Or you might say he judges rightly, as verse 2 said. Okay? And we also know that God is impartial. Here in verse 11, he's not going to show favoritism to anybody. It doesn't matter, folks, he's saying if you're a Jew or a Gentile. I don't care if you spent growing up in Awanas. I don't care if you label yourself with, with a, a, a denominational label. He's saying if you're living in sin and you are unrepentant and you refuse to surrender to Christ, he's clear. You will experience the wrath of a holy God. It's amazing to me by saying that. How many people or pastors don't say that today? Now, because Paul speaks of the day of wrath... I believe, of course, he's speaking about finality. He's speaking of a final judgment, okay? And I believe that to be what we know as the great white throne judgment. You guys have probably heard of that before. Take your Bibles, if you were, real quick, and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, you'll see from chapter 6 through chapter 19 is what we know as the tribulation and ultimately the great tribulation. You will also know that after that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. You can read about that in chapter 19 as well. And then, of course, we believe there is a literal thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. We believe it is literal. He mentions it five times in six verses, so I believe it's literal. It's not something you know, spiritually happening up there somewhere. So he's talking about a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. During that thousand-year reign, by the way, Satan is bound. And then starting in verse 7, he says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth. They surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. I always love that. There's more than the sand of the seashore. God says, oh, you're done. I just like that. I just, that's just me. There's more than the sand of the seashore, but it says God devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But then he goes into verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. When death and Hades were thrown, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And of course, that will be the final ending, and it goes into chapter 21 and dealing with the new heaven and the new earth. Notice there in, in, in verses 12 and 13, it says right there at that final judgment, it says the dead were judged according to what they had done. Just keep that in mind for a second because that goes along with our study if you turn back to Romans. Notice, I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 all in one lump here. He says, God will give to each person, hear those words again, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good, who seek, seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now folks, before I speak on these verses, keep in mind there are always going to be uh, people who do not take Scripture as a whole, uh, who don't look at the context, and they just simply want to read a verse and they respond to that verse. We all, we all have seen those people. Here, you're going to have those people who read these three verses and say, wait a second, I thought we were saved by faith and not by works, because here it says, God is going to give to each person according to what he has done. It says those who, who do good get eternal life, and those who pursue evil receive God's wrath. Well, folks, keep in mind, first things first, the entire book of Romans is crystal clear that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's all throughout the book of Romans. And of course, even just going throughout the whole New Testament, it is scattered throughout the entire New Testament. There's, not a, there's no qualms that we're saved by faith in Christ. So Paul here, understand, is not, is not taking away salvation by faith. He's simply saying you're going to be judged by your works. Okay? Maybe you can put it this way. At that point in time, folks, your eternal destiny is already going to be settled but your works are still going to be appraised, okay? Now, the works these verses are talking about give evidence if we are saved or if we are lost, okay? No difference if you look back at verses 7 and verses 8. You'll see that. It gives evidence to who he's talking about. A person's habitual conduct, whether it's good, as verse 7 says, or whether it's evil, as verse 8 says, it reveals the condition of their heart, Okay, so understand judgment is, is going to consist of rewards and it's going to consist of punishment. Okay, each falling in line with your relationship to Jesus Christ. Obviously, someone who pursues a, a glory and honor and immortality, it's no question they're born again and they will receive eternal life and of course, vice versa. So with judgment consisting of both rewards and punishment, right? each one falling in line with, 
with your relationship with God, or if you will, your lack of relationship with God. Now, I just looked at Revelation chapter 20, as you know, where it said the evil dead were judged according to what they had done. Okay, they rejected Christ, that's why they're there. But then they were judged according to the works they had done. Okay, that's Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. Now here, and if you can turn there if you'd like, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 10, now remember, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He even includes himself in this, right? He says, for we, he says, for we must all, includes himself, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or or bad. Understand, by the way, the word judgment there is the Greek word bima or bema, however you want to pronounce that, right? You, maybe you've heard of the bema seed of Christ. That's where Christians will receive their rewards. The word judgment in our English isn't always the same Greek word, okay? So here we're, we're dealing with the time of judgment, but it's a time when Christians receive their reward, okay? So it's a good reminder that even though you're saved, even though you're born again, even though in your mind you're heaven bound because of the blood of Christ, we're still responsible for our actions. We're still responsible for those. We will stand before God and give an account of those. Okay? Well, back in Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 7 again. He says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will be given eternal life. Once again, Paul is not talking about how one comes to salvation. Obviously, there's not an issue of works. He's talking about the actual life of the believer. What does he say? He says they persist in doing good by seeking the glory of God, honor from God, immortality with God. Okay? By the way, the word persist there as well as the word seek or seeking, those are both in the present tense which means it's ongoing. It doesn't end. It's habitual. It's continual. They continually persist in doing good. They continually, all the time, if you will, seek the glory of God and honor and immortality. These are things he's saying that are manifested in the life of a true believer. Therefore, naturally, he says, they will receive eternal life. Now, in the contrast of that verse and these people, he simply flips the script in verse 8. But, there's the contrast, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Folks, the contrast there to the believer in verse 7 is very clear, isn't it? You have the person here who is self-seeking. In other words, that simply means they live for themselves. It says, clear as day, they reject the truth and they follow evil. The, the word there, reject, actually means they do not obey. It means they do not obey the truth and actually follow evil means they obey evil. It's just the flip side. They do not obey the truth, but they obey or they follow evil. And this person, he says, will experience the wrath and the anger of God. To make that more clear, MacArthur says, this signifies the strongest kind of anger, 
that which reaches fever pitch when God's mercy and his grace are fully exhausted. It will mark the end of God's patience and tolerance with the unregenerate, the unrepentant mankind in the swelling of his final furious anger, which he will vent on those whose works evident their persistent and unwavering rebellion against him. The challenge to Paul's readers is that true believers will live their lives a certain way. Okay? Obviously, the flip side is true. The unbeliever will live their lives a certain way. The works, though, what they do, are going to be diametrically opposed to one another. Something good to think about. If, if you can't be picked out of a crowd as a believer in Christ, there's a problem. If somebody videotapes you for a week and they can't tell that you're a believer, there's a problem. There's a problem there. Okay? But the works of a non-believer and a believer should be diametrically opposed to one another. And they will all be judged accordingly, a believer as well as a non-believer. Okay? Now, time for a little self-examination in context, especially the one who sees everybody else's sin, right? But yet he pays no attention to his own. That's a little self-examination, certainly for you and for me, but certainly for the person in this text. They're going, hmm. Because <laughs> that's why he picks them out. That's why he uses the strong language that he does. Now, going into verses 9 through 11, you're going to see a little bit of repetition, but the focus is going to be on the future, okay? And no matter what you think, he's saying, there are no favorites, especially if you're the Jew who's doing these. There are no favorites. He says, starting in verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Verse 11, for guess what? God does not show favoritism. Okay? So as I mentioned earlier, the Jews expected something different from God. God said in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I chosen among the families of the earth. You only, you Israel. That stuck with them. Kind of reminded me of what Paul will say later in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He's talking to the people of Israel, and he says, theirs, meaning the Jews, Israelites, theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs are the covenants, the receiving of the law, and the temple worship, and the, and, and, and the promises, the patriarchs, and on and on. They were blessed people. There's no question. And this is why he says, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, they possess greater privileges. God had called them. They were his chosen people. You and me might say something like they should know better. But, of course, we know better too when we fail. Okay? And, but with those privileges, they were used to thinking of themselves as numero uno. That's for Nick. In the sight of God. They thought of themselves as number one in the sight of God. In the mind of many Jews, they had a one-way ticket into God's presence, period. I know people like that today who live in filth. Doesn't matter. Got my phylactery on my door, got my yarmulke on my head. I'm heaven-bound. 
But Paul makes it clear. That is not the case, is it? He makes it clear. doesn't know. Verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for who? For every human being who does evil. For the Jew and the Gentile, he says. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, folks, it's a very important word, that word does. The word does, once again, this is, these are important. Does is in the present tense. That means it's continual. Okay? It, the word literally means to carry out a task until it's finished. Okay? The New Living Translation actually says it correctly. It says there will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing evil. It literally is they practice evil on and on. It's habitual. Okay? So he says for every human being who does this, there's going to be trouble and distress. So he really kind of doubles down on the whole Jew and Gentile part because there are nobody else. There's Jews and then there's Gentiles. That's everybody. So he doubles down on this issue. I don't care if you're a Jew. Okay? Adam Clark says this is talking about misery of all descriptions without the possibility of escape. Will the righteous judge inflict upon every impenitent sinner? It doesn't matter who you are, he's telling them. And here he's dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles, but we can apply that to ourselves. I don't care who you are, how you grew up, if your parents, you know, are in ministry, they're unbelieving missionaries. I mean, there are, there's, there's a mess out there all over, the, all over the, the, the church or people who proclaim to be in the church. It doesn't matter who you are. Now, I remind you folks that the word judgment, you and me probably think of the word hell. That probably is the first thing that comes to our mind. It's described in many ways in Scripture. In Mark 9, 48, it says it's where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Matthew 13, 41 and 42, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 14, 11, it's a place of no rest. We don't usually hear that one too often. It's a place of no rest. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, and this is really a key, you are separated from the presence of God, period. Matthew 8, 12, it speaks of outer darkness. And then, of course, Matthew 25, 46, eternal punishment. I may have missed a couple, but I think you get the point of what that is. This is not a time where people hang out with their friends, as I've heard before as well. Fine, I don't want to be there anyway. All my buddies are going to be It doesn't work that way. Opposing this would obviously be Verses 10, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Once again, Jew and Gentile alike. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then he clearly says, guys, listen, I'm not showing favoritism. I don't care who you are. I don't care your heritage. It doesn't matter. See? But folks, that verse is dealing with, if you will, infinite grace. Infinite grace. Do you realize that those people are sinners too, just like the first group? They are. They're sinners too. But they are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just like those of you today who have put your faith in Christ. The reward for the faithful as seen in verse 7 is eternal 
life. And by the way, it's all going to be eternal. It's simply a matter of is it going to be life or is it going to be death? But it will be eternal. Hell is eternal or heaven is eternal. You can look at it to that way. Now, eternal life, folks, is not just talking about um, uh, quantity or longevity, but it's talking about quality as well. We think eternal life is everlasting, and that is true, but it's life. Paul mentions glory and honor and peace. Peace is good. I like peace. That's a good thing. Right now, right now, today, if a believer dies, listen to me, we don't know what it's like. Nobody in this room can tell me what it's like when a believer dies today, when he goes to be with the Lord. That's all we do know. We just know all we know is that he goes to be with Christ. You did a study on that once, if you remember that, TJ. The Bible talks many times of we know it's up <laughs> to be with the Lord, right? But we don't know anything else. What, what people usually think of is future. See? One day we will experience a new heaven any new earth. And that's what people usually think of. When I hear people today saying, oh, God bless Uncle Billy who passed away yesterday. He's walking the streets of gold. Eh, don't be so quick. But it doesn't matter. As was quoted many years ago, it doesn't matter where you are. It's who you're with. You're with the Lord. I don't care where it is. But one day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that, of course, is in Revelation chapter 21. That's right after we talked about the great white throne judgment, right? John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Go back to Second Peter. God destroys it. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And of course, you can continue to read throughout the whole thing if you want to see what is the description of the new heaven and the new earth. I kind of like the fact that I won't have to deal with sin any longer. Every day we wake up, it's a struggle. Not just my sin, but when you watch the news. How many people don't want to watch the news or read the news or <laughs> anything else? It, it's, it's constant. It's how awesome would that be to be in the presence of God? And there won't be any. That's pretty amazing. But of course, there are many, many other things. So we're talking about quantity and quality, okay? But the point being made here as we close is that Paul is making to these, uh, the people there, the church in Rome, there's going to be judgment, he says. And so he's, he's basically making a point of where do you fall? He's telling these people. You have those who are sitting here pointing out the sin of everybody else. All the gross immorality that we saw in chapter 1. Well, look at you, look at you, look what you're doing. You're a mess, you're a disaster, whatever. But he says, you're doing the same thing. But they don't look at themselves. They're really good. They know what sin is because they can pick it out of the other person. 
They just don't bring it to themselves. How many are guilty of that? Right? I'm, I'm fine with God. There are those today who go to a worship service. There, I guarantee you right now, listen, there are millions of people today all over the world who are in a worship service who don't know Christ. Every pastor will tell you that. Dude, I've gone to a worship service for years. Man, I was brought up in the church, right? It's the South. It's the Bible Belt. Hoorah, right? And that's, that's what they think. I'm good to go. But he's saying here, there is no free ride. And I don't care who you are. You can be a Jew, you can be a Gentile, you can be given all this stuff, whether the Jew of the past or even a Gentile today. Your parents could have brought you up in Sunday school. That doesn't mean you're heaven bound. You could have been through Juanas for life. It doesn't mean when you die, God is saying, oh, it's so great to see you. It doesn't mean that. And so the challenge to these people, the challenge to us today, is really going back to a self-examination. How many people... Know you're saved, but maybe even you still struggle with some of the things that happen in here. It's a question we all have to ask. And, and he's simply saying in this passage, you know, people are going to go to hell. And people are going to be in glory in heaven. Where do you fall? Where do you line? But whatever you do, don't say I'm religious. Don't say I'm Jewish. Don't say I'm a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Nazarene or anything else. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you see those things in your life? Or when you read those things that we saw in chapter 1, or even the things here, you think about yourself all the time. You practice evil. Do you find yourself there? It's a great time to evaluate your own life. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, um, for our time today. Um, there's so much to be said in the book of Romans. Um, we're talking a lot about sin We'll continue to deal with it all the way through the middle of chapter 3. But Lord, it's, uh, um, it's good because there are people out there today, even one guy who has 40,000 people in his church in Texas who never talks about sin. All he does is pat people on the back and tell them how good they are, but yet, Lord, we are not good. We are sinful people. And so, Lord, we first thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that, that Christ died to pay for our sin. Because, Lord, we know that only one of two people will, will pay for our sin, us in hell or Christ on the cross. It's one of those two. And, Lord, we're grateful that, that we put our faith in Christ as the perfect answer, the perfect sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews tells us, that we won't have to pay for that sin. Thank you for your forgiveness. But, Lord, we pray for those here today. We pray for those and their families and friends who don't know you and especially those who think they know you. It's so sad. They're the hardest people to reach who say, well, I, I know this. They, they, they point at everybody else's sin, but they never seem to realize their own. And they think because they can answer a few Bible questions or because they went to Sunday school as a child that somehow they're heaven bound. God, please work in the hearts of all of these people, helping us all to see our own lives, not, not to always point out everybody else's, but to see our own lives, to recognize what decision needs to be made is it salvation or maybe simply repentance for the believer because of they've wandered? We pray your Holy Spirit, Lord, do a work in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.